0: In this Climate Gen episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Jack O'Connor at the UN University's Institute for Environment and Human Security. Jack is the author of the Interconnected Disaster Risks report that is looking at tipping points impacting human security and the Earth system. These so-called risk tipping points are showing signs of tipping, and in this interview, we discuss how humanity can respond. The report is available for download via the notes as well as a link to the main website with detailed insights into a number of risk tipping points. In the next episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Caitlin Norton of the British Antarctic Survey. Caitlin is the lead author on a recent study that made international headlines titled Unavoidable Future Increase in the West Antarctic Ice Shelf Melting Over the 21st Century. We will discuss the locked-in sea level rise, what this means as well as the responsibility of publishing findings with such huge social impacts and how scientists themselves internalize the information. This episode will go live to members on Friday. A big thank you to everyone who's joined via YouTube and Patreon for supporting this ongoing series that is now over 120 episodes. Due to so much work pressure, I am able to get episodes out earlier to members and the summary versions appear freely available a week or two later. This episode is being published in full to coincide with the report. Much of the work I do seeks to help us all articulate the important consequences of what is a very real climate emergency. I have covered every UNFCCC COP meeting since the signing of the Paris Agreement at COP21. Despite this landmark agreement, nations have ignored their responsibility to safeguard the well-being of citizens around the world. My book, Cop Out, How Governments Have Failed the People on Climate, is being published in March 2014 by Adlib Books and is available for pre-order on Amazon, among other sellers. Drawing on my interviews with a great many leading experts and in-the-room recordings, Cop Out takes you inside the COP to not only see what has failed, but also how the dynamics have shifted, as the public are slowly waking up to what three decades of climate policy failure really means.
1: Jack, it's good to meet you. Thank you very much for taking the time today. With regard to this new report on risk tipping points, can you start by specifically defining what we mean by risk tipping points?
2: Well, with risk tipping points, what we mean is um, these are points um, in systems that we use every day. So human systems our systems we rely on for food, water, but also things uh, in the environment. The first key thing is that these risk tipping points can apply across many different systems. And what we see in these systems that we use is that their um, risk in these systems is increasing towards a point where the systems will no longer be able to function in, in the way that we rely on them to. And after their function changes drastically, now new risks can emerge. And that's what we really try
1: to focus on. Can you use one of the, the risk tipping points that you use, groundwater was an example. Can you talk us through how a, a, the groundwater risk tipping point can extend beyond its sort of regional setting and become more widespread?
2: Absolutely. So yeah, the groundwater tipping point example, if we're talking about interconnectivity, there's a few different ways that we approach it. One is that we look into a tipping point to dig back into what we call root causes. And these root causes usually manifest in our um, behaviors and our values as people. And then stemming from that, we design systems in certain ways, often with certain weaknesses and vulnerabilities that contribute If we think about the groundwater issue, which is that we're bringing up water from underground to irrigate our crops, this has worked well for a while and helped us to cope, especially in arid areas to irrigate during droughts, for example. But now we're reaching this point where they're starting to run dry. And some of the underlying drivers and causes for this things like risk intensifying land use. So despite the fact that we can see the problem coming, we're still um, pushing the accelerator to extract uh, further and, and get what we can now rather than make a more sustainable system. And this kind of behavior also underlies um, other tipping points um, in our report. For example, there's one on accelerating extinctions. There are a few uh, underlying drivers, many of which are well known, but uh, underlying these drivers, we also see um, a desire to uh, extract resources as much as we can without little future planning and without considering the impact of our actions. So these Underlying root causes can interconnect cases, but also when we talk about tipping points, once tipping points pass these critical thresholds, now they can increase risk in other uh, types of systems. So for groundwater, groundwater is an interesting case because it's something we don't see. It's underground people don't think about it much. But science tells us that underground in these, we call them aquifers, these freshwater reservoirs, there are actually rich, um, diverse ecosystems also. And so once these things are getting drained, uh, we are also unaware of the impact that it's going to have on these underwater ecosystems, but it can likely uh, lead to less biodiversity, which cascades into further extinctions.
1: And in the report or sort of with the report, you do highlight some of the groundwater issues in India. And I've interviewed hydrologists in Italy who are saying that there's a huge um, sort of deficit if you look at the groundwater like a bank account in terms of increasing risk for agriculture and things like that. Do you think that as we move forward that we're we're accelerating the risk for things like agriculture? Is that another way that these systemic sort of interconnections can filter back out and, and reach people who may think they're immune from these?
2: Absolutely. I, th- I think in the report we we try to focus on um, groundwater for food and irrigation. And we, yes, as you say, we, we do look at India, Italy. I, I think that um, another one of the ways that uh, the risk increases is that we rely on groundwater to shield us in terms of drought, for example. But when we run out of groundwater, we see that people are now trying to shift back to um, a rain-fed um, agriculture. And this is a problem considering the changing climate. Rain rainfall is no longer uh, as reliable as it used to be. So we're sort of jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire now. Um, and when we need to come and rely on weather patterns to to save us, it's just a riskier way to do things. So if we see groundwater, if we see ecosystems, and we see um, some of the other systems in the report as um, our safety net as our tools to cope with risk. And as we pass these tipping points, we're sort of cutting these these
1: cords and the net is getting weaker. And so stick with the, with the water. because one, I've had it really interesting the way that the the groundwater, we're talking about agriculture, which food systems, and if a large one of these fails, you were it's not just the local economy, but it's also that community needs to get food from somewhere else. And that puts pressure on other supplies. And these are the ripple effects that we're talking about a lot, is there's less food to go around globally. I know there's huge issues with food production anyway, but, but yeah. uh, these these cause shocks to the system.
2: Yes, I, absolutely. I, I think that we're starting to, and I say we, you know, people around the world are starting to understand this more and more. I think the war in in Ukraine, for example, people started to understand that we rely on food that is not grown where we are and that means that something that happens on the other side of the world is a massive problem for us and while today we might not be directly involved we don't know about tomorrow and so we need to we need to really reduce risk yeah. um, in these kind of systems i mean we saw for groundwater um this is not a theoretical point um wells have run dry um, already in many places like saudi arabia and once they lose this ability now they're buying up um, agricultural land overseas and actually buying up agricultural land in places that are um, getting more stressed like the american midwest so the people there are running out of water not just due to their own um, food and economic needs but also from other places
1: Another item which I thought was really interesting was uninsurable future, and obviously, I mean, this can only be relevant in parts of the world that are that are uninsurable, which is which is generally places like Europe, I suppose, and wealthier parts of the world like U.S., Europe, etc. Can you talk a little bit about how this
2: impacts us? Hmm. To start off with, yes, on the surface, it does have to do mainly with the people that can afford insurance. There is a big push um, to try and protect as many people around the world as possible with insurance, and it is still challenging to achieve this in, for example, the global south. And this will become more challenging as we go along. This issue of people no longer being able to access insurance um, because the damage is being inflicted by um, different hazards and the risk rising due to climate change, now people are losing what they had um, already. But this problem does then, once this point is passed and an area becomes uninsurable, there are cascading impacts that affect everybody. So for example, not just homes, but also businesses, if they're unable to get insurance now, um, it's hard for them to buy or access properties. And they may start to move away from a certain area. And so for the people that don't have the resources to move, you sort of have these areas of high risk with people trapped there without coverage. This also affects government that now has to step in and support more, which draws resources away from other um, services. So even though on the surface, uninsurability protects the wealthier people, in the end, it will affect everybody.
1: And we already see insurance companies pulling out of places like California. And I think AXA have warned that there are thresholds to what they see as insurable. I think as temperatures go up, they just have, that's an uninsurable world, et cetera. This has a huge, you mentioned the cascade potential. This really for for countries where people who consider themselves probably quite well off or secure, could suddenly see themselves flip into a different status. Do you think that this could be quite a serious impact as we go forward now? I mean, in terms of how we perceive life in the wealthier parts of the world?
2: I think so. There's an argument to be made that if you have insurance, you may encounter what we call moral hazards. So you're insured and you feel like you can be risky because you have a safety net um, where what we're trying to do is get people collectively to to step back from taking risky choices. And the people that are waking up suddenly in California and different places of the States to find that they're not covered anymore, it comes as a big shock. And now they realize, uh, I think, more the risk that they're in. So I think the idea is that insurance is one part of a toolbox that can help us to manage risk, but we need to wake up to the fact that even if we have insurance, the risk is still rising and not just for insured, but everybody. And that's what needs to be taken care of rather than thinking, OK, I have insurance, I'm good. And then wait till the day it rescinds. And uh, yeah, you're, you're suddenly in a very risky situation.
1: And do you think there's a connection here to loss and damage is Basically, results of impacts of climate change, and we've, it's in the context of climate vulnerable nations, who are generally global south and much poorer. But if you if you suddenly find yourself uninsurable, then you are, you know, your your whole life is changed. And we it helps us think through some of the real impacts of what we're facing now. Is that it's not just those people over there. It's it's, it's something we've got to consider on a much broader scale and. Maybe helping those people over there will help us understand these these issues much more widely.
2: One hundred percent, i would I would uh, support um, what you just said there, Nick. Um, I think that in order to reduce risk for ourselves, it's it's important to reduce risk. For all Um, insurers actually the risk has raised so much this problem of insurability is uninsurability has been coming for a while. And one of the steps they took a few decades ago was to get insurance for insurance companies so when it's getting too expensive now you get this thing called reinsurance. And reinsurance covers a much wider area, and that's how they're able to absorb these big costs. But it also means that um, a disaster that happens far away, um, if it's covered by the same reinsurer as you, can raise your premiums, even if nothing has has happened in your um, locality. For this reason, and there are various others, I think this idea of collectively reducing risk, having it matter to you what happens to someone somewhere else helps to reduce your risk for sure.
1: Yeah, and it just comes back to all of these tipping points as the there is an interconnected system. Just very quickly, I, there's one called space debris, and I didn't really <laughs> know what that meant. Can you just give a, a very quick overview of what the space debris is in terms of a tipping point risk?
2: Absolutely. The the uh the space debris case, it sits it seems to sit a little bit outside of the others because uh nobody thinks about space too much. Um, but the, the risk there heading towards a tipping point has to do with the fact that we're launching and launching um, satellites. And and from now in, into the near future, we're looking at escalating that quite drastically. But we haven't yet well regulated, especially the low Earth orbit, which is uh, where a lot of our satellites um, end up. We don't have good plans to, to bring down these satellites. And There have been a few uh, collisions and explosions in the past also that means that um, the orbit is filling up with um, debris or or space junk. Meanwhile we're sending up more and more satellites and um, there is uh, theorized to be a, a density where it gets so crowded that if there is a collision the debris from that will then start a chain reaction um, that hits another, hits another hits another until um, the satellite infrastructure is basically um, no longer able to be used by us. And uh, wow. we use these, yeah, we use these uh, satellites, uh, among other things, to monitor weather patterns and anticipate and give early warning for uh, disasters. So once we lose those those eyes in the sky, our risk of in many all systems goes up. Um, so we wanted to illustrate that and uh, press for the need to transform how we think about uh, using our space around the planet.
1: How much resource is being put into studying this at the moment, or even coming up with a strategy for tackling it?
2: I think that there there are uh, there there is a lot of resource and um, strategy. For example, people are looking into. Um, Ways to remove junk from orbit. Um, it takes a lot of resource, obviously, to do that. In our report, we look especially into solutions and and what I'll be doing. What can we do? And we classify them into solutions that will delay us getting to the tipping point and transform in a way where we can avoid it. And a lot of the solutions that we see, not just in space, but in a lot of um, the tipping points, is that. We found good technological ways to delay getting there, like uh, uh, maneuvering satellites around to dodge uh, junk. But in order to really address it and avoid the tipping point, the challenge is space, Uh, like a lot of what we call the global commons, where it's not owned by anyone in particular. There are political reasons security reasons why there's a lot of distrust um, between countries. And and what we need is to find a way to overcome these for a a unified um, solution among countries to
1: regulate and make decisions on being more sustainable. This really brings us towards the part of the report that is a framework for confronting these challenges. Can you talk a little bit about the framework? I mean, the three words that stick out are avoid, adapt, delay. How do you encapsulate all this?
2: The framework deals with two binary things. So there's yeah there's a there's avoid adapt and there's delay and transform. Um, the avoid and adapt re- relates to the fact that um, as much as we want to do what we can to avoid tipping points, some of these are uh, may or are uh, unavoidable. So for example, we look at mountain glaciers. Some of these. We are going to lose. It seems difficult to avoid that happening. So when we think about solutions, yes, we want to avoid, but it could also be time to start learning how to adapt. And then the delay and transform, as I say, the, the delay of things that we do, we're doing to try to give us more time. Um, before before things fail. So in terms of glaciers, um, there are a lot of interesting solutions like laying blankets on the glaciers to try and get them to melt slower and, and this kind of thing, which which helps. But in the end, the people that depend on these glaciers for their water, and that water is going to disappear in some cases, need to start transforming the way that they use water, start transforming the way that, that they value water in order to make sure that when the tipping point comes and the water slows down to disappear, that they're ready and they don't face the worst impacts. And it's not just for 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 the mountain communities, but this kind of idea about changing how we value water and other things applies to to all of us. It's difficult to change your value when you don't see the immediate impact. So if you turn your tap on and the water comes out, motivation to to see that water is so precious is low. But I always um, think of times that I've been hiking. I I don't know about you hiking um, out for a week, say, all of a sudden water becomes the most precious thing in the world and you come back and turn the tap on. And it's a miracle that you can just access water in this way. And if we can start to shift how we see things to being precious, to not being throwaway, to not being endless, we'll reduce
1: our risk in a lot of these tipping points. One thing I saw in this part of the report, it was saying we need to avoid working in silos. And it kind of reminded me of James Lovelock, who used to say that too much of science was operating inside those. Is this something that you're starting to see now? I think we are starting to see more people interacting with each other, social sciences, you know, hard science, all that kind of stuff. How do you see that?
2: I see it as a as a process. I do see it. I agree. I, I think more and more projects are required and research is required to be transdisciplinary in recognition of this and if we look to things like the global goals, if we look to the Paris Agreement and agreements on biodiversity and the even SDGs, it's starting to find its way into the text more and more that um, they need to address not just um, climate change, but also biodiversity and also this because the interconnectedness is being realized. And um, if you're looking to make progress on things like glo- uh, well global goals, but even at the local level, If you're trying to, for example, push through um, something that you think is going to make, achieve sustainability, but you try to do it without bringing everyone involved. If you try to build a marine park, for example, without bringing in fishers, finding out what their needs are, what the pressures on them are, then you're likely to fail. So, yes, we break down the silos and and cooperation is uh, a lack of cooperation has driven up risk so much. So we just need to flip
1: that over. Growth and cooperation will reduce our risk. We're talking now about transformation, but we used to talk much more about transition. And we always saw this sort of timeline where we're going to transition to a new clean um, energy economy or whatever. Mm. But we haven't really done that. (laughs) Emissions have been shooting up. um, Fossil fuel production is, is ramping up as we speak. And now... People like yourself are using terms like transformation. And it's it is, it feels like um a euphemism for urgency. The way we're going with the expansion of fossil fuels at the moment, it seems like what you're saying here has a an unfortunate sort of inevitability about it. And that we're what we're really looking at is a high-risk adaptive strategy, because mm. the the changes where we need them to be happening aren't happening. Is that would you say there's any sort of credibility to that? Uh,
2: yeah, I think so. I think that there's a value to, um, in some uh, cases, recognising that um, adaptation is required. And at, at the global level, I think that's why the global goal on adaptation is is getting a lot of uh, traction currently. And um, but uh, yeah, the the transition that we want to make, and and as you say, it's it's not so much happening the way we would want. And and we look at emissions and, and these patterns, and and why is that? And I think that it's because to just say okay, we're we're going to transition, we're going to go from here to here, and we can make the plans and and progress in some areas, but the transformation is is in a way the pathway, and the way that we we have it in the report. Is that it's hard to just transform like that overnight. It's it's a process of building blocks of lots of um, little pieces, and without each of us, you, me, um, each of us transforming and starting to take these small steps and building small pieces, we won't we won't get there, and we definitely won't get there um, fast enough. So uh, first of all, we need to recognize what is it about. Our, our values and our business as usual approach that has been getting us there and and in a way internalizing that and then starting to find ways that we can start to change those behaviors and um, yeah that's I guess what we're hoping to give people with the report is, is is a tool to start thinking about it and moving towards it
1: well thank you very much it's a a very good place to to finish i think and um i'll link to the report so i hope people read through it because it is it is readable it's not it's not too heavy to digest so thank you very much
2: yeah thanks nick it was great to talk to you thanks for a good conversation
0: Thank you for listening. A reminder that episodes appear weeks earlier for YouTube and Patreon members. This is due to my work schedule. However, support for the podcast enables this work to continue. Thank you.